Hey everyone, and welcome to a perpetual feast here on the Circe Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, a producer here at the Circe Podcast Network, and before we kick it over to the show with Wes Callahan and Andrew Kern, I just need to say a quick word from our sponsor. Roman Roads Media is a publisher of classical Christian curriculum designed for homeschoolers and homeschool co-ops, and they're back this year with a giveaway for Circe Podcast listeners. Each episode of Perpetual Feast, they're going to be giving away one of the 16 units from Wes Callahan's Old Western Culture Series, a high school video course that guides you through the great books of Western Civ. Complete with workbooks, discussion, questions, and readers, Wes Callahan draws from decades of teaching experience as he tells the story of Western civilization, integrating history, literature, theology, politics, philosophy, and so much more. Here's how to enter this giveaway. When this episode is posted on our Facebook page, on the Cersei Facebook page, leave a comment saying which unit of the Old Western Culture you would choose if you win. One of the comments will be drawn at random three days after the episode is posted. To browse the available titles in the Old Western Culture series, please visit www.romanroadsmedia.com. So thanks to our good friends over at Roman Roads Media for sponsoring this season of A Perpetual Feast, uh, especially with Wes Callahan being one of the co-stars of this show. We are really honored to continue partnering with Roman Roads and with Wes Callahan to make great content for you. We hope you really enjoy this season. Uh, So without further ado, I'll kick it over to Andrew Kern and Wes Callahan and their ongoing conversation of the works of Homer. Enjoy. So she spoke weeping, and the countless throng lamented. Then the aged Priam addressed his people, saying, Fetch in firewood now to the city. Don't be scared at heart, lest the Argives set up some smart ambush. For Achilles, when sending me back from the black ships, guaranteed that he'd do us no harm until the twelfth day's dawn from now. So he spoke, and at that they harnessed both oxen and mules to wagons, and quickly assembled outside the city. For nine days they carted back timber in abundance, but when the tenth dawn came, bringing light to mortals, then shutting tears they carried out bold Hector, laid his corpse on top of the pyre, and set it ablaze. But when dawn appeared, lately born with her rosy fingers, then a crowd collected around illustrious Hector's pyre, and when they were all assembled and gathered together, first they quenched the still smoldering pyre with fire-bright wine, in each part that the fire's force reached. And next his brothers and comrades gathered up the white bones still mourning, with great tears streaming down their cheeks, took them and laid them away in a golden casket, wrapped in a soft purple cloth. And at once after that, put the box in a dugout grave and covered it over with great close-set stones. And last, very quickly, heaped up the burial mound, with lookouts all around it, in case the well-grieved Achaeans attacked them before the stated time. And when they'd raised the mound, they all went back, then sat down together and shared a glorious feast in the palace of Priam, the king who was Zeus's nursling. Such were the funeral rites for Hector, breaker of horses. Hey, Andrew. Oh, hi, Wes. You just walked in on me as I finished up. I did, and I sat here and listened as you read, and uh, I found the place you were reading from, which I believe is from the end of the Iliad. It is. And um, 
Something struck me about a particular point in the passage you were reading. Can I point it out? Please. <clears throat> Toward the beginning of the passage, you read where they take nine days out of the 12 days that Achilles promised the Trojans could have to, to, for the funeral rites for Hector. They take nine days to bring back the timber. Nine of those 12 days are used up just in hauling timber, and only one line for nine days they carted back timber in abundance. But when the 10th day, when the 10th dawn came, and then on that dawn, then we have the remaining, the remaining passage. And it, what occurred to me is that that's so much like the way I remember my own life passing. There's lots and lots of days that are just days passing. And then there's suddenly a day with major importance and major, major events in it. Um, God might see my life differently, but that's how I, I, I see my life. 365 days pass and then Christmas. 340 days pass my wife's birthday. 290 days pass a vacation. But what happened in all those days? I was just gathering timber. That's amazing. Sort of like when you write an essay or, or write anything, you spend a lot of time gathering timber and then you cry. Pretty much. Pretty, pretty much. <laughs> And then what it is it Hemingway you bleed blood on you you bleed blood onto paper and that becomes your novel. Yeah. It was it him who said you cut yourself a lot. It's easy to it's easy to write a novel. Just open a vein and start and start bleeding. But um not, yeah. <laughs> not always crying though because in the in the uh, in the third to the last line you read they came together and they had a glorious feast. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Isn't that strange? Yeah. I guess we have some vestige of that in in, uh, in in more recent West old Western culture, you know, Irish wakes and commemoration services where people gather to say the good things they remember about someone who's recently passed. But mm -hmm. uh, I think I think this is vastly more fully understood and developed uh, in, in 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 Homer here. So Homer, yeah. Homer. Well, that's why we call it the perpetual feast, right? Because Homer had a thing for feasting. Exactly, and, and yeah. he, he was better at it than we tend to be. He was, and we, this has been this has been quite a uh, quite a fe quite a feast. You know, the day after day, sullen, sodden, unremarkable pass, and then so on 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 a day now and then, I get to talk about the Iliad with my friend Andrew. And we feast. <laughs> there <laughs> this you is, go. This, this, is, this has been a perpetual feast covering the Iliad. I've. Uh, I've really enjoyed this, but we've kind of come to the end of the book, haven't we? You know, it's it's funny. Yes, it's been a perpetual feast. And yes, technically, we've come to the end of the book. We did in episode seven. But you never come to the end of the Iliad. Because right. you said you made the point about the nine days at mm -hmm. the end of the Iliad. Do you, do you remember in book one when when... Apollo started shooting arrows at the Achaean camp. Yeah. Do you remember how many days yeah. how many days nine he did days. that? Nine days he fires arrows into the Achaeans. So it begins and ends with this nine day interval. Yeah. I, I have a suspicion that, that that's because Homer intended it to do that. That there's there's not only a there's not only a lot a, a lot of just work days followed by feast days, or in this case, a funeral. But there's also a rhythm to life and there's a pattern. We did, we have been talking this, this, 
season about the way Homer weaves the Iliad together. And, you know, we talked about how there's three sections beginning and ending with Achilles and Zeus and so on. Yeah. yeah. But I wonder, do you think there's anything like that from book one to book 24? Is there a way that we could maybe summarize the whole Iliad yeah, probably, by, probably by so. tracing, maybe just compare book one with book 24 and see what comes of it. We, we found patterns in, in each of the three sections, one through eight to nine to 15 and 16 to 24. And that would be highly unlikely that having so beautifully built those structurally, he didn't build the whole book structurally. So I, I like, I like your idea. What do you see in terms of uh, the, the similarities between one and 24, how do you see them relating to each other, Andrew? Well, you have a vastly superior memory to mine. Plus, you know, some Greek. So I'm going to probably need to depend on you to help me think that through. If I had a vastly superior uh, memory to yours, I would remember how the sentence I just started began. Well, there is that, but the stuff you read. (laughs) So, so what do we, when, when we, when we start in book one, here's some things I can think of by glancing. When when we start in book one, we have um, a, a council where people are angry and Apollo gets involved. At the beginning of book 24, there's a council and the gods are angry and Apollo's involved. In book one, uh-huh. it says in, in line 33, so he spoke... The old man was scared and obeyed his words. In book 24, Mm. an old man is approached. He's scared, but he obeys Mm. words. So Mm. I don't know how much of that's coincidence, but we could probably go go on and find all sorts of parallels. But I don't want to get too nitty gritty in it. I want to because, you know, we, we looked at. We're doing very much a, an overview. What is that called? Is it dove flies or is the crow falls or something like that? We're very much bird's way up view. above a bird's eye view. Yeah. And this bird is flying quickly. And so. A vulture's eye view, which oh, would be yeah. more appropriate to the Iliad, right? Yeah. From Surveying con- the carnage we've left in the wake of the Iliad from our dis- destructive talk. Actually. Do, do you no, know what I, a no, group I, of. I, I, do you know what a v- group of vultures is called? No, what? It's called a Congress. <laughs> Are you serious? I am. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> it says so much about both vultures and congresses, doesn't it? Yes, it does. <laughs> and what people think of them. <laughs> well, I I agree. We probably don't uh, need to get too much into the detail, but as even as you were listing a few of the things, uh, the, the 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 the, uh, the gathering of the gods, the Congress of the gods, the involvement of Apollo, the old man and his fear, and so on. The other things were popping, popping into mind. So I think that I think think you're right. That would be that would be a fruitful discussion for a, for some other time. But yeah, maybe maybe we should just look at the arc of the whole story and see if we can revive, bring back to our memories and and, and our readers and, and what the whole picture looks like. Can we do that. Yeah, sure. I didn't mean to imply that you shouldn't compare one in twenty four. I just meant. In doing so, we could get lost in detail. And then what, what I'm thinking is, what if we what if we do a quick cursory comparison? We, we already just did. Um, and then talk about how we got from book one to 24. What happened in between there? Yeah, OK, yeah, let's 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 do that. All sort of a plot one, summary. One of, my, if you like. one of my favorite things to do is to get lost in detail. So if I do, you just drag me back out. I know. I know. <laughs> 
I do too, especially when the details are such beautiful threads. Well, here's one. There's a feast in both. We 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 ended uh, book twenty four with feasting, and at the end of book one, uh, we have to wait for Zeus to come back with feasting. Is that too much of a stretch? He's off feasting with the no, Ethiopians. So. Thetis has to wait for him to come back from a feast. Um, might just be coincidence, but it's something that's repeated in both of them. Isn't Poseidon off to a feast in the Odyssey book one? Uh, you know, I believe he is. Huh. There must be a perpetual feast, really. Yeah. Yeah. The feasting never stops when you're a god or a reader about gods. <laughs> right. Okay. So, yeah, there's a feast at the beginning and the end. Uh-huh. And there's the, and maybe, um, I mean, more, you know, much more significantly, um, the, the, the quarrel that, that, that uh, the, the whole story is about begins in one and is resolved in 24. That's pretty, that's pretty uh, mundane. Um, but um, it's true. You know, the, the, uh, the, the quarrel is set up in one uh, and it's resolved in 24. However, we view that resolution. Well, yeah, I don't, the only thing I don't like about what you just said is calling it mundane because I love the obvious and, and I find as a reader, especially in school settings, the tendency is to try to go deep and then you just miss everything that's on the surface. And the thing about Homer, that's one of the main things Homer has taught me is just look at what's there. Just look at what's sitting on mm. the surface because it's quite impressive. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, find more mundane stuff. Well, although even, even that, um, uh, even the, the resolution uh, is, uh, and I think this is a, this is a, a mark of genius. It's not an obvious re- resolution. In fact, the way I, inter- I interpret the resolution, it's far from obvious. It's it's uh, absolutely startling. Um, but it's not without its. But but the resolution is mm-hmm. not without its problems. It's not too neat and you know nicely tied up in a package because, you know, the the, the, the very last line isn't about what the first line tells us the story is. It's not about the anger of Achilles and its devastation. The very last line is about the death of Hector, breaker of horses. So it's not a. It's not the kind of resolution that we might expect we lesser mortals might might have written hmm. but it hmm. is a but it is a resolution hmm. uh, and uh, maybe maybe by way of um by way of contrast um in book one most of the, the at the beginning we have a we have a um an um, an outcry in the achaean camp and then in book 24 at the end we've got the outcry for hector in the trojan camp so we begin with a view of the achaeans and we end with a view of the trojans so we see both parties bookmarking the story excellent excellent i've never been quite sure what the significance of that is but i'm sure it's significant something like a moving of the binoculars from the achaean camp to the trojan camp with all the other scenes that the binoculars pass over uh, in the other books two through 23 is there a gradual shift in in the setting from from the greek camp to the trojan camp um you know i i I don't think so um I haven't thought about it in those. It's more bouncy. Yeah, it? yeah, it bounces back and forth. So it's not really a gradual shift from one to the other. Uh, but it is interesting that the focus, the 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 scene we're we're first set is with the Achaeans, and the last scene we're left with is with the Trojans. And then and then we hardly talked, and it was so sad. We hardly talked in the last session about everything that came between book sixteen and book twenty four. And that rage of Achilles exploding 
on yeah. the on the Trojans and book after yeah. book after book. It, and it builds up for two or three. Well, it's book 19 when he finally enters the battle because in book 18 he needs to be armed. So his mother gets him some armor. Yeah. And so, so then from 19 through what, 22, he's five books. He's, yeah. he's gone berserk. I suppose if we had enough time, had we but whirled enough in time, and if our audience were patient with us, and if we gave ourselves a chance to talk about the Odyssey and some other things, we could always come back and go through the Iliad and the Odyssey book by book and even episode by episode um, because it is a perpetual feast, and we would never be done with the podcast, which sounds no, to me like wouldn't. a glorious thing. But That's we why we called uh, it a perpetual we, feast. <laughs> but we didn't have time to do that. In fact, we didn't even we didn't have time to really develop a view of the trajectory of the whole. That we that we did get a good glimpse of it. What do you mean by that? The tra- a trajectory of the whole. Well, if you uh, C.S. Lewis in his book uh, on um, the prep called Preface to Paradise Lost, in the first ten chapters, talks about epic in general. And he talks about the uh, about you know, primary epic and so on, secondary epic of Virgil and whatnot. But one of the things that uh, uh, that I took away from that book the first time I read through it, lo, these many many years ago, was the difference between reading a lyric poem and an epic poem. And uh, whereas a lyric poem rewards requires and rewards close scrutiny, the epic has to at least begin with uh, the long distance view. Uh, and and uh, and I've often told my students it's like a, seeing a cathedral. You imagine Salisbury Cathedral on the plains of of England, You're coming to it for the first time. You don't go right up and start looking at the at the you know tracer at the joinery in the windows and the carving of the toes of the feet of the saints. You stand back three hundred yards and you take in the thing as a whole so that you can appreciate the symmetry and the coherence hmm. and the harmony of it. And then once you have an appreciation of the whole, you can get close and look at the details that make it up. If you get to the get up to the details too soon, you have no appreciation for the masterpiece that they're part of. But the same with a piece of music. Nobody would go to listen to a symphony, uh, having never heard it before, and partway through the first movement, jump up and shout at the conductor. Apart from being rude, you wouldn't just jump up and shout, stop, I need to savor this for a moment. You, You listen to the whole thing, the whole sweep of the symphony, and then later, you know, after you've kind of, after the glow has worn off, you buy the CD or the record and you go home and you play little pieces over and over and you start savoring the detail. But you need to see the whole, um, at some point, it doesn't even necessarily have to be first, but at some point, pretty early in one's experience, you need to see the whole. And, um, um, and that's, that's why that. I'm glad. One of the reasons I'm glad we've done, we've taken the approach we have looking at, at big structures before we did this slow savoring of passage by passage. Yeah, me, me too, because... Because we can we can see the whole thing, sort of. You know, people people will have to read it. We 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 can describe it by pointing out highlights and so on. But people will have to read it to feel that sweep. But but you've I think you've given yeah. a really really great reading tip to to anybody who who maybe hasn't read the Iliad or the Odyssey or or any big book yet, and that is just read it. Just just go from beginning yeah. to end. Don't worry yeah. about all the details. Don't look for every magical trick that they play as they're they're, they're doing it. Just experience the whole. Right. And, Absolutely. you know, you can't experience the whole of, of the Iliad the way you can box mass and be minor because you can't do it all in one sitting unless you have 24 hours to <laughs> sit and read. But, you know, yeah. you could you, you could. Cons- it, it, OK, here's my fancy. I've never done this. So I'm not recommending. I'm not saying, hey, go out and do this. But if there was a way that I could set aside three days 
And on mm-hmm. each of those three days, I would spend eight hours reading a section of the Iliad. Uh-huh. I would, uh, that would be such a great way to do it. That would be so great. And it takes about, I'm told it takes about 24 hours to read the whole thing. I think that's an excellent idea. A friend of mine or a former student of mine went to Biola and emailed me. I think she emailed me this 20 some years ago, right after she got there telling me that on the day she arrived, John Mark Reynolds, I think John Mark Reynolds did this. But anyway, they, they sat around in a circle and they read the entire Odyssey in one reading. <laughs> and yeah. there, there is something magical to that. We, uh, yes, your mind wanders off, but so what? You're getting the whole sweep. We actually do that here at at, uh, at Hill Abbey when the students live with us. Um, uh, they they come in early September because it's an academic year, and and in late September, early October, when the when the when the weather's cooling off, uh, you know, we we build a fire outside. We've got a little fire ground, and, uh, and we start early on a Friday morning, about six or seven in the morning, and we read straight through the Iliad. And we're done around midnight or one in the morning because we take a few breaks and so on. So it takes us 19, 20, 21 hours. Wow. Um, and we have we we arrange for people to bring us food so we don't faint from exhaustion. But it's a glorious experience for just the reasons you're talking about. You let the sweep of it uh, come over you. You let it wash over you um, in this great stretch. Wow. That's probably too much. I, I think your, 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 your first suggestion, reading this in, in three eight-hour chunks, would be would would be completely perfect because they, to my knowledge, in ancient Greece, when, although for centuries and centuries they had the they had the Homeridae, the rhapsodes who would recite Homer at the at the great uh, public uh, festivals, they never did the entire thing at once. They would do probably three or four hours worth. So to break it up, uh, and I really like your idea to break it up into into three days, eight hours each. Uh, would not exhaust you overly, but you'd have long stretches of listening to Homer, which is necessary. You don't want to just l- l- read little snippets and then sit and meditate a while, uh, at least not the first time. You need to just plunge on. Yeah, yeah, right. And and it's and, and in my opinion, it's a mistake to meditate on it too soon because because you, you simply don't have enough of it to meditate on until you've gone through it, you know, until you've got the whole thing and, and until you, in fact, until you've got – the whole thing, maybe even a few times, I don't know, yeah. but cause I don't want to discourage people, but, yeah. but, I, but what I want to say is sort of a reading tip is, is read the whole thing in as short a time as you can. Maybe two weeks is what you can do it in, but read the whole thing and don't, don't meditate on it. Don't reflect on it. Don't test yourself on it. Don't try to prove how smart you are in school. Don't, don't do anything intellectual with it. Just absorb it like a child listening to a story. And then as you go through it, the next time you, you can pick passages and and you can think more about them. But I mean, one of the things about Homer that's so amazing is how much he does put at the surface. And it's mm-hmm. when you look at one surface and compare it to another surface that you slide between the, the surfaces without even knowing it. But you just kind of you, you, yeah. you, you sink into the depth of it. But but you don't become a philosopher. You become a perceiver. And, it, and it's a it's a. Uh, it's a phenomenal experience to read Homer like that. It is. And I, and I agree with you that even if it takes a person weeks to get through it, um, just to keep on reading without worrying about exegesis, just to read the poem is great. I, I, I always uh, urge my students uh, uh, to read um, um, at least a book at a time if they can, because on average, a book of the, one of the 24 books of the Iliad would take about 45, maybe 50 minutes to read at the most. 
And so anybody can do that. And that's reading aloud at a normal, at a normal conversational pace. That's not speed reading. Uh, you know, uh, sp- speed reading is a mortal sin with a great book. Um, but it doesn't. It's not required to get through it. Um, so, uh, even if a person can't, you know, read big, uh, you know, huge chunks, go to an all-day reading or a three-day reading. Um, most people, if they're, if if it's important enough to read, it, it's important enough to set aside forty-five minutes a day and read one one whole book because it takes some time. Uh, you know, to, to get into it and let the thing settle into your soul as you're reading, and to and, and for your heart to sort of warm to it, you might say. You know, yes, a, and I want to. Oh, go ahead, please go ahead. I do have something I want to follow up on that, but what were you going to say? Well, if you're following up, say it. I'm changing well, gears uh, a little bit. This will, this will introduce a slight change. I, I, want, I want to talk about uh, about rereadings, but um, what what did, what did you want to bring in? Well, I just was going to say uh, some people might be listening to this who who maybe are business people or or military people or something, and just don't have a lot of time to read and we're, we're sounding like some leisure class at, you know, an hour a day. And, and I get that, but, but let me just say that, that there's, there's a distinction that I found extremely helpful in my own thinking about practical practicality. And that's the difference between purpose and blessing that God, God gives us things to do and gifts and so on because he has a purpose for them. And that purpose is always related to the establishment of his kingdom and the fulfillment of the prayer that his son taught us, always. But what's amazing to me is how when we fulfill his purpose and we leave it to him, blessings trail in the wake of the purpose in ways that we could never even imagine. And in a, as a general principle, I found that when we seek blessings instead of purpose, we the blessings are temporary. But when we speak purpose instead, seek purpose instead of blessings, the blessings follow wildly, like fruit on a tree. And what I'm getting at is this: that that there is incredible utility and practical use in reading and meditating on Homer in relation to work, in relation to military, in relation to uh, the business life in relation to, you know, whatever your career involves. Incredible practical utility. But if you go after that practical utility first, you might find what you think you need, but you won't find the other stuff. But if you just read Homer to read Homer to absorb Homer, then when it comes time for the practical, there will always be something there for you. I'm I'm going to say that the Bible is even more this way. The Bible is where that pattern became revealed to me. But when I applied it from the Bible to Homer, I don't mean to say that Homer's the Bible. You understand I'm subordinating it. But when I when I applied that that lesson that I learned from Bible reading to Homer, it was it was really fantastic. And I want to I'm not I don't like the idea of reading Homer academically, and I don't like the idea of reading Homer practically. I like the idea of reading Homer for Homer's sake, as it were, so that so that you you dwell on, you gaze on the Iliad, you you absorb the Iliad and the Odyssey. But the practical benefits of that that you can't even know ahead of time, I guarantee anybody listening to this, they will blow your mind. Well, I don't want to put it that way because that is it's true, but it's too ecstatic. They will be 
they will trail. They will be there. The fruit that you need will be there when you need it. Yeah. The things, the things that we've talked in the past, talked about in the past about the uh, Homer's influence on culture and, and his value for civilization and so on. That's part of the, of the, of the fruits that become dawning realizations later. Um, but anybody who, who reads, I would never want someone to read the Iliad because, because they thought it would make them cultured. I think that's disastrous. I would never want somebody to read the Iliad because, because they, uh, because they had to, even if they're act, act, even if they're actually reading it as a requirement in class, that doesn't mean you have to read it because you have to. I would only want somebody to read a, a, the Iliad or any great book because they had a desire for it, you know, because their heart was inclined to it, because they, because they, 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 they wanted to seek something good from it. Um, C.S. Lewis has. What about the person who doesn't have that desire? Well, they shouldn't read the book. But the fact that they don't have the desire doesn't mean that they that they can't um, uh, teach themselves to have that desire. And there's desire on other levels because if there are people, there there are people who are interested in. Uh, in, in reading the great books because the great books are great. That is, there's, there's more food there to feast on than the shallow trash that populates most of the, the, the world of bookishness. If they desire just to enter into it on any level, even if they're, they have trepidation at the thought of the Iliad, there's some, there's some desire in their heart um, for, you know, for, for, uh, for, for, enter, for entering into the, into the feast. But, but if, if, if a person really had no desire, they wouldn't be listening to this podcast or even interested in, the, in picking up uh, Homer at all. If a person genuinely didn't want to read the book, uh, I wouldn't want them to read it either. I think desire should be at the heart. I'm astounded. <laughs> You're, why are you astounded? I, 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 no, no, no. I was going to say I'm astounded by something. I, I constantly meet people who are not academics, who are not, who are not um, into great books. Mm. And then in the course of our conversation, Homer will come up. I don't know how, but Homer will come up sometimes because I mention it, but surprisingly not always. And it's amazing to me how many people from all walks of life have read and love Homer. Just amazing to me. If you haven't read Homer... There, you've missed out on something. You've missed out on something magnificent, and we have to we have to end. So, so I want to I want to ask you, Wes. Do you have a closing piece of reading advice <laughs> that you want to leave people? Yeah. Um, on either how to approach Homer or just how to read. Yeah. Uh, well, in t- in terms of, of, of how to read, um, especially uh, the, the great books like the Iliad, one is just an addendum to what we were saying earlier. We, we're, we've always been talking about reading, but for people who have trouble reading or for a little time, uh, listening to Homer on audiobooks or tapes uh, is not only perfectly legitimate. Excellent. In many ways, that's preferable because of – remember all the things we've said in the past about how this book is really uh, part of an oral tradition. It wasn't a book to begin with. It was a story that somebody had composed orally and it was meant to be heard in a, you know, a public setting. So listening to Homer. Um, but here's the, here's, the, here's the tip, and there are lots of others too. I think this was an important one. Um, to read through the Iliad once is just to begin, and, and nobody who has read the Iliad only once should ever, said, should ever say, I, I've, I've read Homer. Or I know, or certainly not. I know Homer, mm-hmm. um, a person, a, a person who really wants to, uh, wants to enter into the, the the mind of this, you know, this glorious book, um, should um, be resolved that this can be part of their reading life for the rest of their for the rest of their days. You read it slower, read it faster, read in other translations, uh, but 
is like the like the Bible, and of course here again we don't want to compare the two in the wrong way, but, but there's a sense in which it's, it's very true. The great books can never be exhausted. And so like the Bible, there will always be more food to, to get out of get out of Homer or Milton or Shakespeare or Jane Austen. But but the Iliad is one that people have had at the peak of this list of books that they say this is true of. There will always be something to get out of it. It's fantastic. Uh, so my so 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 my my uh, my exhortation is, is is keep reading, keep on reading. You you made a comment. I'll, I'll, I'll wind this up. But you made a comment earlier about my memory. I don't have a good memory, Andrew. I really don't. But I, but I do know this, that one reason that I remember so much about the Iliad is because I've read it so many times. I don't have a great memory, but I've, I've, I've let this story repeatedly you know, go through my head. There's lots of things I don't remember, of course. There are things I find myself remembering wrongly as well. Um, but uh, you know, rather than sitting down and gritting one's teeth and committing things to memory, you know, repetition is the mother of memory, I think. Uh, That's so right. That's right. Repeated readings of the Iliad will, will be the... You know, the mother of memories of what Homer has to teach us. Beautiful. Beautiful. And I want to leave a, a tip very closely related to that. And that is when you're reading Homer, perhaps especially, but when you're reading anything, since repetition is the mother of memory, but for many other reasons, listen for the echoes, listen for repetitions. If yeah. you see Homer repeat anything, just notice it, right? Notice yeah. the echoes and then don't try to get philosophical or whatever. Just let them reveal themselves to you. Wes, I, I hate to end the whole season two so abruptly, but we're out of time and we have to go. Yeah. But Wes. But it's not over. So true. <laughs> we'll continue with the Odyssey in the next season of our perpetual feast. So let me bid you one more time this season, Wes. May the Lord remember you in his kingdom. Thank you, my friends. God bless you too. 